Welcome to our church. We're novices. There we go. I found it. We're, we were all good. <laughs> Today, we're, uh, we're starting our final approach through the book of Acts. We've been preaching. I've been preaching through the book of Acts. It's, my, it's, it's been a book, like I said at the beginning when we first started, uh, it was the first book I was discipled in as a teenager. Our church had a discipleship program called One on One. We, we were matched up with an adult in the church, and, and we went through the book of Acts together. So it was the first book I was ever discipled in. It's a book that I read again when I was in university, and God used it really to uh, direct me toward a life in missions, um, which has led me to Asia and then to Canada here. Um, it's been a book that I've gone over with our leadership here at the church time and time again, every time, new stuff. It's a book that I said, as I look out among you, we're a multi-ethnic multi church here, multicultural, multilingual church here. It's a book that, ha having been part of this church for 10 years, man, the book of Acts, we, we looked from the beginning, it's a church of, 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 of God taking this movement that started mostly, well, entirely a Jewish community in Jerusalem, and then, and then through Judea and Samaria, and, and how it came to be this multi-ethnic thing that God is doing of bringing a people together to himself from all nations. And, and me having pastored this church for 10 years, I mean, I, I depend entirely on the book of Acts to guide us and to lead us and to see. And, and today... I'm actually going to start preaching a series now as we hit the home stretch of the book of Acts of a part of the book that I'm not as familiar with. Like, as a pastor, I get really excited about the churchy stuff that, a lot, uh, that we've looked at a lot of the way through. But in Acts chapter 20 and 21, there's a shift in focus in the book of Acts. And now we get to, we, we, we hit the home shift, and now it focuses from the work of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and the apostles in starting all these churches and in, in this movement. Now the focus shifts very personally to the Apostle Paul and his final leg of this journey, and it becomes a very personal journey as the Apostle Paul goes uh, in obedience to the Spirit, goes to Jerusalem, is arrested, and then through all his trials, and, and he gets shipped off to ultimately to Rome. And it's, it's now becoming this personal journey of Paul's finishing his course, his work, his task, that destiny that God has put in front of him. There's no doubt Luke is setting, remember Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he writes Acts, right? And in the Gospel of Luke, in, in chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and the whole second half of the book of Acts, or that, that middle, I should say that middle third of the book of Acts, is Jesus resolutely marching toward his death in Jerusalem. And it's a pilgrimage story. And now, at, the end, at, this, at this moment in the, book of, in the book of Acts, Luke is actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an analogy, he's, he's definitely setting up, now Paul's on his own pilgrimage. And so now Paul's going to actually make that same journey as he resolutely goes to Jerusalem to the destiny that awaits there of imprisonment and suffering. So we're going to get really personal about this journey onward as we go. The story of the church's birth is pretty much done here now at the book of Acts. And now we get to that personal journey. And as we go, we're in Acts chapter 21 today. And it, it, as you open up Scripture... If you have a copy of the scriptures, or if you've got a phone that you use the Bible on, that's great. Just, uh, you know, be looking at the Bible, not Angry Birds, that's all we ask. Um, or whatever the kids are playing these days. When we get to Acts chapter 21, which is where this portion of the book of Acts really takes off, the Apostle Paul is actually faced with a pretty significant choice. 
You see, he knows where the Spirit is leading him. And yet in chapter 19, 20, and 21, all along the way, even as he knows where the Spirit is directing him to go, his, all along the way, strangers, friends, even his closest co-workers, uh, come alongside of him and actually try to dissuade him from that which he knows the Holy Spirit has called him to. And it's very convincing in the way that they try to dissuade him. And in fact, it's even very spiritual. It's a very difficult verse for us in chapter 21. It's kind of difficult for us because it's a little bit foreign. It's a little bit frightening. I mean, some churches today focus on like the prophetic and our church, I, I really believe, with all my heart and soul, our, I've been pastor of this church for 10 years, and I really believe God has led us, and the Spirit leads us and guides us and moves us. But we don't, we don't focus on the prophetic like some other churches do. And so, it, so this chapter 21 is a little bit foreign or frightening to us, and it speaks to a level of spiritual discernment in the text that, uh, quite frankly, I don't know how many of us will be prepared for and to, to sift through. What do you do when you're convinced that the Holy Spirit has set out a plan for your life and everybody around you, even spiritual people, even mature people, even people who say they have a prophetic word from the Lord, what do you do when they all are telling you something else? Remember last week, I told you about um, my call to ministry. I told about that missionary that came to my church when I was, you know, late high school, and I said about how I, I never, I always didn't want to listen to missionaries at that time because I didn't want to hear them. And uh, I told you about this guy who had a full ride to Harvard University and about how he, he, he really heard the Spirit was calling him to seminary to go and be a missionary, and he turned down the full ride wrestling scholarship to Howard, Harvard University. And I said his parents weren't Christians, and they all thought he was crazy, but then I told you that even his pastor of his church said, what are you doing? Even his pastor of his church said, you're crazy. You, you, you've been given this full ride to Harvard University? I think that's the Lord telling you you should go to Harvard University. And he said, no, but I, 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 I have this compulsion in my spirit that I'm to be a missionary in Turkey and I'm to go to Bible college and be theologically trained. And so even his own pastor, his own, his own spiritual leader was, was, was saying to him, man, you're nuts. What do you do when you, you, you have this compulsion in your spirit and then you know it's, it's, you believe it's of God, but everyone's telling you opposite? Wouldn't you at least question your resolve? And that's where we find Paul in Acts chapter 21. That's where we find him. And before we get there, I want to remind ourselves of how we get there. So take your Bible, and if you, if you turn to Acts 21 already, that's great. Just turn over a couple pages to Acts chapter 19. Because this happens when Paul is still in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And it's, it, we, we looked at this chapter, but we just glossed over this at the time. But now it becomes important. So look at Acts chapter 19 and verse 21. This is the seeds that, oh, I forgot I have this. See, I told you, novice. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, like I said, we passed over this verse. It seems very insignificant to us. It's like Paul just making his travel plan. But you and I know, you guys know, 
That when you come to those sections of life that are going to be those you know, intersectional moments of your life where, where you're determining where you're going to live, what business you're going to conduct, what major you're going to have, or whatever, you know that at those moments when you set out and you're prayerfully seeking the Lord's will and you're making those plans, you, maybe I could just write that sentence about your life and you resolved in your spirit to go to Jerusalem, but you know that changes everything, right? That changes the scope of your life over the next year and possibly decades to come. And this is one of those moments for Paul. The plans he makes in Acts chapter 19, 21 actually set the course for the next few years of his life. And you see him now in Acts chapter 19 and in Acts chapter 20 and now in Acts chapter 21. You see that this decision, this resolve that he's come through in the spirit in Acts chapter 19, 21 actually plays itself out through the next years of Paul's lives and through the next chapters of the Bible. And what we've been trained by through the book of Acts, as readers of the book of Acts, it's been demonstrated time and time again. Luke doesn't have to give us the details in chapter 19 of how Paul comes to this resolution because we've seen Paul and Barnabas and church leaders through the whole book of Acts, hearing the Holy Spirit, seeing the Holy Spirit's guidance of them through various different means in various different ways. And so we're not given the details in Acts chapter 19, 21 of how Paul comes to this conclusion, but we see, we trust from reading the rest of the book of Acts that, that he has done this through wrestling, listening to the Holy Spirit, and discerning the Lord's will for the future of his ministry. And so by the time we get to our text today in Acts chapter 21, Paul has already been walking this course that the Holy Spirit has resolved with him already for, for, for at least six months to a year, maybe longer. And so that is the setup now, let's get to Acts chapter 21. Now you're going to see why this is going to be a perplexing passage. Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we'd come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it, on the left we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, and the ship was there to unload its cargo. Man, these parts of the book of Acts, you're just like, what? It's just a travel log, right? But bear with us. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, here it starts getting interesting. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. This is repeating a scene that already happened at the end of Acts chapter 20, when the elders of Ephesians met at the beach of Miletus. And they all wept and kneeled and prayed, mostly because Paul had said, you'll never see my face again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, back in Acts chapter 6. And we stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. There we go. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Amen. So what, what's happening here? There's a conflict between, and you see this in this passage, and from Acts chapter 19, there's a conflict between what Paul has resolved in the Spirit to do and what others are telling him in the Lord to do. Paul had resolved in the Spirit to go on to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And, that, and as he traveled, as he made this travel, as he made that plan in Acts chapter 19, and then as he's already traveling, the Holy Spirit is already speaking to him what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's already told him, you go to Jerusalem and suffering and imprisonment will await you. And Paul knows this. He and, and perhaps, in a, and I think it's because it shows us in some of the things he says, to show him that what he needs to prepare himself for, to show him that his life is not his own, and that he must finish the course of the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus. He says, to, in Acts chapter two, uh, 20, verse 22, he's talking to those Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he actually says, as I've been traveling, as I set this course out in Acts chapter 19, although he doesn't say that, he says, back in Ephesus, as I set out that course when I was with you in Ephesus, I've been traveling around, finishing my ministry, completing the task the Lord gave me to do. And he says to them, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. So his conviction has grown even. He was resolved in the Spirit before. Now he's like, there's nothing else I can do. And the Spirit has been showing to me, testifying to me everywhere I go, that suffering and imprisonment and afflictions await me there. And so Paul already knows, when he gets to Troas, when he, when he gets to the house of Philip, Paul already has had this discussion, I don't know how it works, he's already had this confirmation with the Holy Spirit for possibly six months or greater that this is what's going to happen when I go to Jerusalem. And so when Agabus then takes the belt, and Agabus says, no, 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 when Agabus takes his belt and then says, in verse 11, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the hands of the Gentiles. When Agabus prophesies that over Paul, it's not inconsistent with what Paul's already heard. Paul already is like, yeah, I know. I know that. But what happens when everybody else hears this prophecy, this vision of what's going to happen when Paul gets to Jerusalem, everyone else freaks out, right? And they start pleading with Paul, no, 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 don't go, don't go. And so this is a little bit, what is happening here? The Spirit seems to have been telling and confirming with Paul one thing, as Paul prayed and resolved in Ephesus and then moved and confirmed and the Spirit testifies to him, yes, this is happening, it constrains Paul. The Spirit seems to be telling one thing to Paul, and then as we're moving through this text, people are speaking in the Spirit to him, telling him not to go. And what's going on here? And, and I think it's really important to understand that Agabus is not wrong. He's not wrong. 
He's not saying anything different in the Spirit that the Spirit's already been confirming to Paul. But, and, and, and you have to understand, there's a debate today. And we're going to take out of the text a little bit. There's a debate today in the church, predominantly from some sectors of the charismatic movement, and then against maybe the rest of evangelicalism. But there's a debate today about was Agabus just flat out wrong? There are people today who, who believe in prophecy and prophetic words, and they would say, well, and these people generally make a lot of prophetic words, and these people generally are wrong a lot of times when they're making and issuing prophetic words and directives. And one of the ways they explain that, and now in the Old Testament, you couldn't be wrong. The Old Testament, if a prophet said, thus saith the Lord, and it did not come to pass, they were instructed to stone the Old Testament prophet. And so what some of our brothers in, in, in some of these circles are trying to say is, well, in the New Testament, prophecy doesn't work like that. Prophecy is different in the New Testament. You can be wrong, and they'll say you can be wrong like Agabus. And that's what they say. And they lower, for, 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 uh, for churches and for movements that, that want to put you know, prophetic words more central in the ministry, they actually lower the standard of what prophetic words actually are. And I think it's important to see that Luke never censures Agabus here. Luke never is like, ah, ha, ha, Agabus, you're wrong. Agabus is not wrong. Agabus is not saying anything inconsistent with what the Holy Spirit has already been testifying and clarifying with the Apostle Paul all along. And suffering and imprisonment do await Paul in Jerusalem. They do. When he gets to Jerusalem, he is bound. He is, uh, the Romans come in and, and take him over from the Jews. It's, it is what happens. Agabus isn't wrong, and if, and if Agabus would have stopped there, it would, he would have faithfully delivered the message that the Lord had shown him. The problem is that those who are listening to Agabus' word did not stop there. Like, they don't just stop there with Agabus saying, I don't have a belt today, what? Should I have a belt? He takes off his belt and says, this is how you're going to be bound when you go to Jerusalem. They don't stop there. What they do is then they, they add to it this application for Paul, and the thus saith the Lord becomes not only this is what the Lord is showing us, but the thus saith the Lord becomes this is what the Lord is showing us, therefore don't go. They're applying this word to Paul's life, and they're telling him what to do, but that is not what they got from the Lord. They only got the vision. They only got the picture. But they're going beyond, and they're going beyond it to to now make a statement of what Paul and how Paul is to apply it. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think that Agabus is intentionally trying to manipulate Paul here, and, and I don't see where Luke presents him as a false prophet. What it seems that is happening is, and, and we've seen this in the end of Acts chapter 20, you see this on the beach at the beginning of Acts chapter 21, and you see this now with these brothers and sisters who are, who are weeping with Paul, it seems that out of their love for Paul, out of their love for Paul, and out of their desire to see him safe and protected, they are taking what God has revealed to him through this prophetic word to Agabus, and they are twisting the application because they want to protect him. Because they want to see him safe. Because they, want to, they, they don't want to see him hurt. And it's leading them to twist the word that they've received. And this is where so much of abuse enters when People, this is where abuse can enter when people dabble in the prophetic. Because many of us, we have to understand that what the, what the word of the Lord, what the scripture has 
plainly revealed to us is that the heart is desperately wicked above all things and who can trust it. The heart is desperately wicked above all things and who can trust it. And what we have shown a very good capability, if, if human beings are capable of anything to do very, very well, one thing that we are shown that we can do very, very, very expertly is we can take revelation from the Lord and we can twist it to serve our own ends. And we do it. And, and I don't think, and I think what's happening here in Acts chapter 21 is actually pretty, it, it's showing that he, here are people who love Paul. They, he, they love him and they, they, they don't want to see him hurt. And, 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 and that is actually um, being used among them to actually go from just what the, what the word was to then twisting it in the application. You know, we, we, many people can mistake pro- prophecy for a power trip. Setting up a thus saith the Lord mentality. I was, I'm going to tell you some stories now. Like, we had a guy a, a long time ago in our church who started to see himself more and more in this image of a prophet. And he was spiritually manipulative. Ultimately, we had asked him to leave the church. And, and after we asked him to leave the church, some of you guys actually came up to me and said, oh. And, and you guys started telling me about how he was using that prophet persona to to manipulate and to spiritually abuse people. And I, I knew the church that that guy had come to before he came to our church, and I, I called that church up, and I said, do you know anything about this gentleman? And they said, no, we don't, we don't know of him. I said, because he, he's kind of going around the churches now, you know, claiming that he's a prophet and kind of using it to, like, spiritually manipulate and abuse people. And the pastor of that church actually said to me, he said, oh, that doesn't surprise me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, the pastor before me at this church here in Ottawa, he said, the pastor before me got re- people really, 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 really excited about seeking prophetic words and got really, really, really people excited about taking on this image persona of being a prophet, but never actually ever taught them or trained them how to not be abusive with it. And he says, it doesn't surprise me at all that this gentleman went out because we actually had a bunch of people that went out from the church at that period of time and went out and caused havoc in, in many different churches. You know, on a, on, a, on a funnier level, you can see it, how easily we can manipulate and twist the will of the Lord. The, you know, the biggest joke is the guy who tells the very pretty girl in the class that the Lord told him that uh, she was to date him. Man, you know, okay, young adults, welcome back. <laughs> Don't be manip- spiritually manipulative in your dating, okay? You all know people have done it. Oh, man horror stories. You know, but we're setting up this God's will or the Spirit told me you should be my girlfriend or the other one. The Spirit told me that we should break up. Well, why? Everything seems to be going good. No, no, the Spirit told me we should break up and then they're dating somebody else next week. Oh, man. If you don't like the person, just tell them. <laughs> if you like the person, just tell them. Like, we can, we can twist. We, we, our heart loves to twist the good and the proper and the appropriate. Spiritual manipulation is very dangerous. There's, there's an early Christian writing called the Didache. It's written, people think, somewhere about second century. And in the Didache, it, it has a whole section about uh, wandering teachers and prophets. And, and so at that time in church history, there still apparently were wandering teachers and prophets that would go from place to place. And the Didache, on the one hand, tells them, welcome these people in. If they've got teaching and they've got a prophetic word, Listen to them. 
It's good. Welcome them. Show Christian hospitality. If they stay for a day, great. If they stay for two days, great. If they stay for three days, kick them out. Don't, don't let people use spiritual face to manipulate you, is basically what the Didache is teaching. He sa- it says in the Didache, uh, they, they have they, they, all these different rules for what they're saying. Like, if, if, if what he is saying, if what he's prophesying to you coheres with the word that was given to you, then he's a great teacher, and if you want to take him on, if you want to pay him a salary and take him on and have him be a teacher in your church, wonderful, do it. But if he, and it says this, if he in the spirit asks for money, throw the bum out. That's the exact translation from the Greek. If he in the spirit asks for money, if he in the spirit, there's actually one part about it that says, if he in the spirit, I don't know the translation of the Didache I read, but it said, if he in the spirit orders food, like he's prophesying, and then suddenly he's like, and I'd like a BLT. It says, throw him out, and it actually uses this word. It's an old-fashioned word. I haven't heard it for a while, but he's a Christ monger. Someone who peddles spirituality for money. Okay? So the church is warned in Scripture. Jesus said there's going to be many people who come with many teachings. You'll know them by their fruit. We're warned in Scripture and outside of Scripture for be on the alert that people will abuse a prophetic gifting in order to manipulate the masses. And so we are warned about that. And we are told again and again and again, test them, test them, test them. Compare them to the prophetic word made sure. I mean, I love Peter. This is not in my notes, but I love that section in, in 2 Peter, I believe it is, where where Peter actually says, if you want to talk about prophetic words, Peter's got one for you. Peter says, I was with him on the mountain when the mountain shook. I was with him on the mountain when the glory was revealed. I was with him on the mountain when the voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But you have something greater. You have the prophetic word made sure, which you would do well to pay attention to until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And so prophetic words, yes, but we can manipulate through them. And and that's where there is abuse comes in. That's why Paul gives the instruction to the Corinthian church. I forget where I'm at. Whatever that instruction is that Paul gives the Corinthian church. Trevor, you want to just press forward? I think a battery might have died. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, let two or three prophets speak. There's a, there's a prophetic community here in Corinth. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And, and here is the key. The spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. God is not a God of confusion, but of God of peace. And he writes again to the Thessalonians, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Now, what's the point of all this? Weigh all prophets. I I believe this episode with Agabus is recorded for us to warn us how easy it is to take revelation from the Lord and to twist it toward our own desires, our own ends, our own applications. Agabus and Paul's friends were trying to protect him 
but they twisted then the meaning of the words spoken through them. And listen, our church right here, real talk. Some of us are very skeptical of parts of the Christian faith that are more comfortable in speaking about prophetic words. Some of us are fine with speaking about prophetic words and about prophecy. We are an evangelical free church. This is one of our open-handed issues. I know we have hardline cessationists in our congregation, and I know we have charismatics in our congregation. And let me tell you, the danger is a danger for all of us. It's so easy to look at other segments of Christianity and say, those crazy charismatics, they're always just saying they got a vision from God, and then they're twisting it, and they're lying, and they're manipulating, and they're abusing it. But guess what, cessationists? We can do the same thing. Revelation from God, we, because of our wickedness of our heart, we do not love to sit before God and say, God, teach me, guide me, show me, lead me. We like to follow our own plans and say, God, I will twist the word you give me so I can pursue my ends. And if you don't think that cessationists can do that, we can do it. You might have understanding teaching about marriage and about divorce. And you say, okay, well, I have the word made sure, but when my friend is sitting in front of me, now suddenly I want to see them happy and comfortable, and so I'm going to twist what the word has given me, and I'm going to try to help them so they can apply it so they don't have to hurt anymore. You might have a theology about who I can date as a Christian, but when that guy or that girl is alluring to you, you might say, you know what? Maybe God is actually telling me I should date them and maybe I'll bring them to the Lord. You can have a, oh man, issues of the day. You can have a, a biblical understanding of sexual ethics. You can have an understanding of sex outside of marriage. You can have an understanding of fornication. You can have an understanding of, of homosexual activity. You can have the, all your dots in the right place aligning with Scripture, but when your friend comes before you, suddenly you can say, you know, maybe I've got to rethink some of that, and maybe the Lord is saying that in your case, there's exceptions. Like, we can do this. We don't, you don't need to be charismatic to take revelation and twist it. At all. And so, and so this word that Agabus has shown us, I, 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 I personally, I do believe, I do believe that God can still speak today through these things. But the warning, I, I, don't, I don't know what you guys believe about that, but I'll tell you the warning exists for all of us. That we can twist. Do not arrogantly think that you're exempt from the command to test the spirits. To, to weigh scripture with scripture, to weigh the prophetic word yet untested with the prophetic word made sure, and to do this in community, right? To do this in community with one another, to do this with, 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 with faithful, with wise, with, with, with teachers who, who, who know the word of God and can help you to test the spirits. So that's one, weigh all prophecies. And, uh, yeah. There's one more application that I, I want to give. And, yeah, I'm trying not to twist the application here. <laughs> 
But listen, not only are we apt to twist scripture or twist any revelation to suit our desires like Agabus does with the prophetic words he's given, but at times we might be in Paul's shoes as well. That we know what God has set in front of us. We know the path that God has set and laid out in front of us. We know what God's will is. We know what God's word has said to us. But our friends are tempting to us to choose the easy and the comfortable path and the path that suits us. The path of self, your self-interest. The path of self-interest is not, I mean, this is Jesus speaking of saying, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up my cross and follow me. The path of self is not the path of life. There can be, I don't think, hardly any more basic New Testament teaching. And so what Paul's friends are tempting him with is to choose the path of self, to choose the path of self-interest, of self-comfort. And Paul replies to them, and he says to them, what are you doing? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. They gave up. And Paul says, I don't, I don't choose the path of self-preservation. I don't choose the path of self-comfort. I, I, I've been crucified with Christ, as he says in Galatians. And therefore, I no longer live. I, I don't care what awaits me. We talked about this indifference, right, last week. I don't care what awaits for me in Jerusalem. I have already died. Are they going to take my life from me? I've already given it to Christ. Are they going to take my comfort from me? I've already suffered imprisonment and beaten. This is a guy who'd been left for dead. What are they going to take from you if you've already had it taken from you by the Lord? And Paul's saying, like, look, I'm not scared. I don't know why you guys, why are you breaking my heart? Why are you concerned more about me than I am about myself? I've already died and been raised with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live and Jesus Christ now lives within me. If your friends at school see that in you, I love that their friends just basically like give up. Paul's friends just basically give up, right? They're like, when we saw he wouldn't be persuaded, we gave up, we ceased. I know some of you guys, some of you guys have told me, some universe, and I, I, listen, I know it was uh, like, the, what's that called, Frosh Week? I know this week, uh, university students, but high school students as well, and, and all of us. Man, the temptations that might have already hit you and slammed you with this week. Maybe as you came back to school this semester and you thought, all right, well, this semester I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm going to seek a church, I'm going to seek some godly friends, I'm going to, and then you got, you got hit this week. I have known some of you guys who've shared with me a testimony where you're staying in the dorms and you literally had a guy in your dorm all semester who is trying to make you fall as a Christian. Somebody who is actually like trying to get you drunk, get you high, and get you laid, and so he could say, ha, 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 you're no better than me. That temptation is there. And there are some people who want to see you fall. And I love this, where Paul, when, when, they, when they do not see you persuaded, when they do not see you give in, when they do not see you walk 
off the path of saying, no, this is the path the Lord has set in front of me. I will not depart from it. Man, resist for a season. Resist for a season, and you might find that that temptation goes and gets more and more minimal. I remember the story... Oh, man, I'm really bad at remembering missionaries. I remember the story of one of the missionaries who talked about how he joined the British, I think it was the Air Force, and his, he had just become a new Christian, and his pastor had told him, when you get to the Air Force on the first day, you make sure you tell someone you're a Christian on that first day. And he said, well, why? And he said, because if you don't do it the first day, the next day is going to be harder, and the next day is going to be harder, and pretty soon you're going to go through a month, and pretty soon you're going to go through six months, and pretty soon you're going to go through years where you've never taken a stand for Christ, and you're going to give in more and more and more to temptation. You're going to give in more and more to the, to the, to the uh, environment around you. So on that first day, you tell someone, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to live for Christ here. And, and he says, he, you know, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the military. So he gets there, and there's, you know, all the paperwork you got to fill out, and you get your gear, and you go, and you do, and, and it's just one thing after another. Every single part of the whole day was taking care of you, standing, you know, and he gets, finally, they get into bed that night, and it's like after midnight on the first day, and he's in bed, and he's so exhausted. They did a hike, and he's exhausted. And he's sitting there, I just want to sleep. And then it hits him, I have not told anybody today that I'm a Christian and my pastor told me I gotta do it because I gotta do it from the beginning and so and so he uh he goes hey buddy wakes up the guy in the bed next to him hey buddy what go to bed no no I gotta tell you something it's like what is it we're trying to sleep all right I just gotta tell you this okay what I'm a Christian and the guy swears at him and says go to bed you know like but he did it. He did it that first day. And then he could do it the second day. And his buddy next to him was probably like, what was that all about? And he probably got to share a little bit more. And there might be that temptation that comes and that, 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 that environment that comes and just slams you and slams you and slams you. I remember when I was in Japan, we had these drinking parties. And when you live in Japan, you go to your, your business, your company will have a drinking party. They're called Enkais, and you're expected to go. Everyone who works there is expected to go and expected to get completely drunk. I mean, my principal of my school, this, like, in the daytime, the stoic guy who no one would ever, like, say, you know, cross words with, I went to one of these Enkais. He was so drunk, he was doing cartwheels on the beach <laughs> and, like, sumo wrestling the other teachers and just completely red-faced, completely, oh, my goodness. And it's expected. And I remember I would go there and be like, <laughs> the first time I went, uh, we would have the, 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 the kampai at the beginning, right? The big toast. And so they would they'd pour me the drink. And I would do the, I would do the kampai with them. And then, and then they would come after and they'd pour me the sake. And, and I'd say, no, 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 that's okay. I, I did the kampai, I'm fine. And they said, what? They said, burn, you got you to gotta drink more. And I said, and I told them, I said, I, I put it in like very like terms that the Japanese could understand. Because there is like, you know, a, uh, like a quasi-Buddhist uh, quasi Shinto religion there. And so I was like, no, I'm a Christian. And they said, oh, we never met one of those. And I said, they said, oh, if you're a Christian, you can't drink alcohol. And I said, no, you know, it's not that. It's that I want to keep my mind focused. And that's how I said it. <laughs> I said, as a, as a, you know, I don't want to be drunk with wine. I want to, said, I want to keep my mind focused. And they went, oh. <laughs> 
And so, and so the next time we went to this Enkai, I said the same thing. And the third time I went to the Enkai, um, it was awesome because one of the new teachers came to pour me up, pour me a drink, and then this teacher over here goes, no, 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 no. Mr. Byrne, he's a Christian. He wants to keep his mind focused. <laughs> and the other teacher goes, oh. Yeah. And so that became the thing, you know? If, if I said no the first time, the temptation, the, it ceased. And I don't know how far off this text I've gotten, sorry. <laughs> but I've been crucified with Christ, and therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives with me. That path of self-preservation is not the path of life in Scripture. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, lose it. Those who hold on to their life, they've got nothing. Be convinced. I am so convinced of the Word of God. I'm so convinced of my God's ability to lead me. As the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, that, that, that we will not depart from his path. Even when I know my own heart has a proclivity to take from the Lord and to twist it for my own ends, and even when I know that my friends are going to come, even people I love, even people that I respect, and because their desire to see me happy, because their desire to see me preserved. I know whom I believed. I persuaded that he's able to keep that I've committed unto him until that day. Paul is marching to Jerusalem. He knows that death and imprisonment await him there. Jerusalem in Scripture is the city of the cross. It is the city of death, but praise God, it is the city of life from the dead.